glad to be here, glad to be back up on this stage in a teaching role today. It's been a long time, um, and um, I'm up here a lot on this stage with Stewards of the Game. I, um, uh, we have a lot of families in our church that are involved in this, as well as the community, a lot of coaches uh, that, that, uh, that worship here as well. And so it's good to see some familiar faces and to be able to have this opportunity today. I'm going to fly through what we've got uh, today because we have a lot to cover. Um, we are continuing this Read Your Bible series, and we are continuing on the life of David. And I want to remind you, if you've not picked up this study guide that Jim DeCicio, uh put together, um, please pick up one of these on your way out this morning. They're on the information uh, bar uh, as you go out there. And um, this is phenomenal. This really gets into uh, helping you understand the life of David uh, in some very uh, in-depth ways. And um, it's going to touch on stuff that I'm not going to be able to touch on today. Um, but it's very good. And if you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, grab one on your way out. There's some in, in both uh, corridors there as you go out, and you're welcome to take one of these with you today. So we're going to continue uh, soaping through the Bible, um, bathing ourselves in the Word of God, right? Um, however you want to say it. Um, and we use this process uh, that we're doing, it, and it's, it's broken down the acronym. So Scripture where we take a passage of Scripture and we take a look at it. Then we observe it closely. That's the observation part. And, and what we're looking for there are application points that we can apply to our lives. And then we want to pray through that and see uh, what God's got in store for us based on that passage of Scripture. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of the hermeneutics, homiletics, exegesis, and eisegesis stuff that uh, Donnie and Randy hit on. If you want to know more about that, go back and, and listen to the last couple of weeks. They, they can fill you in on that. Um, but I will tell you this. I've been to seminary um, and, and have a degree from there, and so I, I studied all that in-depth stuff, and, and it's important. It, it really is. But for all of us that are in this room today, we're average Joe Bible readers. We are not, um, we are not picking apart, looking at the Greek and the and the Hebrew, and all that kind of stuff. We're average Joes, um, and that's fine. That's completely fine. God doesn't call us to, to uh, uh, cross every T and dot every I and make sure that we, we've got it perfectly figured out because we drive ourselves nuts. So um, there's simpler ways that we can look at Scripture, and I wanted the re one of the reasons why we've had multiple people sharing during this series is because we want, to see, we want you to see different perspectives of how different people study their Bibles. And so um, I'm, uh, I'm not going to explain any of that detailed stuff to you right now. We're just going to dive right into this passage um, and uh, take an average Joe look at it. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, and this will set us up. It says, after Saul died, David returned to Ziklag. He had won the battle over the Amalekites. He stayed in Ziklag for two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp, and his clothes were torn. He had dust on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground to show him respect. Well, where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from Israel's camp. What happened? David said, tell me. He said, Israel's men ran away from the battle, and many of them were killed. Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David spoke to the young man who brought him the report, and he asked him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Well, I just happened to be there on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. Saul was there too. He was leaning on his spear. The enemy chariots and chariot drivers had almost caught up with him. Then he turned around and saw me, and he called out to me. I said, what do you want me to do? So just to begin here, 
um, Saul is, has impaled himself with his spear because the enemy is uh, completely wiped out their army and what was left of the Israelite army has uh, abandoned him and his son has been killed. And so now it's Saul and he's trying to find somebody to end his life because he doesn't want to die at the hand of the Philistines. So he throws himself on his spear, but you know, if you watch the movies, he, that doesn't always kill you right away. And he's, he's hanging out there and he's asking this guy uh, to do him a favor. He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Now, that word, those words are highlighted there because uh, we're going to come back to that. I want to see if you can pick up on why that's important as we go through the story. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm close to death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him. I did it because I knew that after he had lost the battle, he would be killed anyway. So I took the crown that was on his head and I took his armband and I brought them here to you. You were my master. Then David tore his clothes, and all his men tore their clothes, and all of them were filled with sadness. They mourned over the whole nation of Israel. They didn't eat anything until evening. And that's because Saul and Jonathan and the Lord's army had been killed by swords. David spoke to the young man who'd brought him to the report, and he asked him, Where are you from? I'm the son of an outsider, an Amalekite, he answered. There's that word again. David asked him, Well, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand and kill the Lord's anointed king? Then David called for one of his men, and he said, Go, strike him down. So he struck, him, struck the man down, and the man died. And that's because David had said to him, Anything that happens to you will be, on your, will be your own fault. What your own mouth has spoken is a witness against you. You said, I killed the Lord's anointed king. End of scene. Okay, pretty chaotic, pretty um, you know, confusing, not really sure what's going on here. We know that, that um, this messenger came and... and, and Brought a message to David, and what happened? He got killed. I guess that's where we get the don't kill the messenger um, kind, of, kind of phrase from. But that, that's what happened. Um, and so if you're like me, um, when, I, when, when I read the Bible, I like to do this. And if you're like me, if you like movies, and I know there's some, some serious movie buffs in here. I know we have several on our staff and, and several faces I recognize here. I like, to, I like movies that have flashback in them where you have this big opening scene with all this chaos or confusion or something big has really happened, and then all of a sudden we got to figure out, well, how did we get to this point? Movies like Forrest Gump or Titanic or The Notebook, those are three that come to mind where you have this opening scene and you're like, why is this guy sitting on a bench with a box of chocolates waiting on a bus? You know, how did he get, get to this point? Well, let's go back and, and see his whole story. Um, so uh, those kind of things help me in, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is full of such phenomenal stories that you don't have to have all the hermeneutics and, and exegesis and eisegesis to really um, hone in there. You can just go back and look at what happened in the previous chapters to bring you to that point to help you understand. And so for the next 20 chapters, and um, I don't have that many minutes, but uh, we're going to go through and knock this out. I, you know, Randy was lucky last week. Randy had one chapter he had to, he had to go through. I have 20 or 21, something like that. So uh, we're going to try to knock them out as quickly as we can. But they will all paint a picture to bring us back to what we just talked about as we flash back. So um, before we talk about who Saul was, um, I want to introduce Samuel to you real quick. Um, we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about him, but Samuel was God's mouthpiece. He was a prophet. God would speak to Samuel, then Samuel would come and speak to uh, the Israelite people, God's chosen people, and he would instruct them on what God said he wanted them to do. Um, 
And so we come up on this situation um, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says this, So all the elders of Israel gathered together. Uh, they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old. Your sons don't live as you do. Now apparently Samuel had a couple of sons, and they weren't really into the wanting to be prophets when they grew up, I guess. I've got two older teenage boys, and they don't really want to do what I do. Um, so that was kind of the situation here. But they said, so you're old. Your sons don't live like you do. So appoint a king to lead us. We want a king just like all the other nations have. Samuel wasn't pleased when he heard this. He, uh, he said to the Lord, he prayed to the Lord. The Lord told him, listen to everything the people are saying to you. You are, not the only one, you are not the one they've turned their backs on. I am the one that they do not want to be their king. They are doing just what they've always done. They've deserted me and served other gods. They've done that from the time I brought them up out of Egypt until this very day. Now they are deserting you too. Let them have what they want, but give them a strong warning, letting them know what the king who rules over them will expect to be done for him. Now, Israel never had a king. They had no idea what they were getting into. But here are the things that the Lord told Samuel to make sure they understand. Once you get a king, these things are going to happen. Number one, your sons are going to be taken away from you and put in an army and sent out to battle. Number two, your daughters are going to be taken and they're going to, they're going to be cooks and servants uh, for, the, for the kingdom. Number three, we're going to take, uh, he's going to take 10% of your flocks from you and he's going to take the best of your fields, the best of your vineyards, the best of your olive groves. Basically, you're going to become his slave. This is what you want. These are going to, going to be the result of it. And so Samuel tells him that, um, and he says, when the time comes, the, the Lord said this to Samuel, when the time comes, you will cry out for help because of the king you have chosen, but the Lord won't answer you at that time. In spite of what Samuel said, to the, uh, said the people refused to listen to him. No, they said, we want a king to rule over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. We'll have a king to lead us, and he'll go out at the head of our armies and fight our battles. So Samuel heard everything the people said. He told the Lord about it, and the Lord answered, listen to them. Just give them a king, okay? Um, so um, we've got this situation here. Um, Israel doesn't want God to lead them anymore all of a sudden. Sounds like this has happened in the past. So uh, God says, give them what they want. Give them a king. Um, so in the next chapter, we're introduced to this guy named Saul. And so we find out in uh, chapter 9 that Saul was a, 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 a Benjamite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, his, um, he was a very, um, uh, his dad was a very important person. Um, and it says, if you go through the verse, um, it says, Kish had a son named Saul. And Saul was a handsome young man. He was more handsome than anyone in Israel. And he was a head taller than everyone else. Pretty good descriptive features. I mean, the most handsome man in Israel and a foot taller or a head taller than everyone else. Pretty big guy, pretty good looking guy. Um, so we know he was a Benjamite. He, his dad was Kish. He was handsome and tall. We learn later uh, in the story that he had five kids and two of them are going to play a significant role. Jonathan, his oldest son, and Michael, his youngest daughter. We'll get to them later. Um, and we find out, too, that he was 30 years old when he became king, okay? So Samuel and Saul have an encounter. Um, it's an interesting story, but you could read through that. We don't have time to go through all of that today. But they have this encounter. They meet for the first time. 
And Samuel says, look, the Israelites have asked for a king, and God has told me that you are that man, so I'm going to anoint you now and pour oil on your head, and here's, here's what I'm saying to you. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you. Then you will prophesy along with them. You will become a different person, and all these things will happen. Then do what you want to do, because God is with you. All right, he's received the blessing. Samuel is the mouthpiece for God. He tells uh, Saul, you're the, you're the man. You're the man that God has chosen. God is with you. Then he tells him, he says, on a side note, I want you to go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and you can be sure that I'll come to you there. So go to this town, Gilgal, you can be sure that I'll come to you there. I'll come and sacrifice burnt offerings and friendship offerings. Um, but you must wait there for seven days until I come to you. Then I'll tell you what to do. So just um, park that in your back pocket for a minute, okay? Uh, this instruction that Samuel g gave to, um, to um, Saul. All right? So um, Israel wants a king. God gives them this handsome, very tall man of a man, Saul. And so Samuel comes out to the people and he says, hey, I want to introduce you to, ladies and gentlemen, your new king, Saul. And there's silence. All right, let's try this again. Ladies and gentlemen, your king, Saul. And Saul doesn't show up. And somebody in the, in the wing says, hey, he's over here hiding behind this baggage over here. So you begin to think if, you know, if God said, hey, I'm with you and, and my blessing is on you and you're the king now, that you know, big, tall, handsome guy is going to come out on stage you know, ready to roll. Well, that's not what happened. He was hiding and they had to kind of drag him out on stage and put him up there and say, here's your new king. Well, immediately there was dissension. You know, we, we, here's what you, what you asked for. Here's what we're giving you. And you got people shouting, not my king, not my king, not my king. Uh, the Bible says that some people who wanted to stir up trouble said, how can this fellow save us? And they looked down on him. They didn't bring him any gifts. So although that sounds like a familiar story, um, Saul goes on and proves himself. He does some things, some good things. In the, and what, what, what happens is he, he helps this one little town of Israelites. He saves them from this calamity uh, from the Philistines. And so he earns a notch on his belt, and his, and his approval rating goes up, and all of a sudden, um, he is uh, officially king. And at that, at that crowning or inauguration or whatever you want to call it, Samuel gives his last State of the Union address, because Samuel is, is about done. And so Samuel starts saying, hey, let me, let me remind you how we got here and where we've been. He's got, kind of doing a flashback at this point. And he says, remember, way back in Egypt, you guys were enslaved. Your ancestors were enslaved. Um, and um, they were crying out for the Lord to help them. And so God did what? God sent Moses and Aaron to convince the Pharaoh in some amazing ways to eventually let you go. And you were released and moved out of there. And then you got to the Red Sea and you were in trouble again and you were crying out. And, and through Moses, we were, God opened the Red Sea and, and you crossed over and and you were, you were safe on the other side, and Pharaoh's armies had all drowned. And God was ready to provide for you. You cried out for, for food, and God provided for you. Every time you cried out, God provided for you. But the whole time you complained, and you said you wanted something else. Hey, let's go back to, to, to Egypt. At least there we were in a better situation. Uh, it says, 
Samuel reminds him of this and he says, but they forgot the Lord their God. Every time God did something good for them, they would remember it for about 10 seconds and then they would forget. So that happened again. And then as the story goes on, the Israelite people in the 40 years in the desert and all that kind of stuff, as they start approaching the promised land, things just get tougher and tougher. They face all these different groups from the outside, the Amalekites who attack them and the, and the Philistines. And so they've got all these armies around them, surrounding them. And they cry out again, okay, God, we're sorry. Come back to us, help us out. 1 Samuel 11 says, The Lord sent Gideon, Barak, Jepheth, and me, Samuel, and he saved you from the power of your enemies who were all around you. So you lived in safety. But now, but, or, but, then, you say that you, but then you saw that Nahash, the king of Ammon, was about to attack you. So you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us. You said it even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is your king that you have chosen. He's the one you asked for. The Lord has placed a king over you. Then he says this, But, regardless of whether you have a king or not, but you must have respect for the Lord. You must serve and obey him. You must not say no to his commands. Both you and the king who rules over you must obey the Lord your God. And if you do this, that's good. But you must not disobey him. You must not say no to his commands because if you do, his power will be against you. And that's what happened to your people in the past who lived before you. And just to emphasize this point, Samuel calls on the name of the Lord and the Bible says thunder shook the skies and rain fell all of a sudden, which was not a common thing uh, in Israel. And uh, the people, the Israelites started to shake. And all of a sudden they went back into that same pattern of behavior. Oh God, please save us. Samuel, tell God we're sorry we asked for a king. Uh, please forgive us. And, and Samuel's like, there he is, okay? So the application point that I want us to get to today is this. Trust and obey. Our focus in life needs to be on trusting and obeying God, knowing that his plan for our lives will work out much better than ours. I don't think there's anybody in this room that would disagree with that. But if you read this story, it just makes it clear. Now, so let's move on a little bit. Saul, uh, let's try to get back to the opening scene. Saul is, is king now. Um, he's done a couple of good things. A couple of battles he wins. And then it's time for him to go to that city, Gilgal, where Samuel had told him. And um, Saul had 3,000 men with him. And so Saul goes down there with his men and they're camped waiting to attack the Philistines. But how many days do they have to wait for? Do you remember? Seven days, that's right. And, and, and they're not supposed to do anything until Samuel shows up. Samuel will offer the sacrifices, and then God will make them victorious. But here's what happens. Day one goes by. Nothing. Day two goes by. Day three goes by. People start getting impatient. All right, let's hurry this thing along. We got 3,000 people, and I'm looking up there on the hill, and I'm counting 3,000 Philistines and about 6,000 more chariot uh, drivers. So we are outnumbered. Day seven rolls along and the people start, the Israelite army starts dispersing. In fact, it gets down to about 600 people. And Saul just says, you know, I can't wait on this guy any longer. And so Saul says, I'm going to do the sacrifices. And Saul makes sacrifices of burnt offerings and friendship offerings that Samuel was supposed to do. And as soon as he does that, guess who walks in the room? Samuel. And he's like, uh, excuse me? I thought I told you to wait. And 
he says in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 14, uh, 13 and 14, he says, You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You haven't obeyed the command the Lord your God gave you. And this is key. If you had, you would, or he would have made your kingdom secure over Israel for all time to come. Forever. If you'd just done what he said, if you'd just waited until I got here, this is the guarantee. He would have made your kingdom secure over Israel for all time to come. But now your kingdom's not going to last. The Lord has already looked for a man who is dear to his heart. He has appointed him king of his people, and that's because you haven't obeyed the Lord's command. So, let's move ahead to chapter 15. A couple battles later, we get to chapter 15. Samuel comes and gives him specific instructions again. And so I want you to observe here very carefully because this will point back to our opening scene and some highlighted words I had in there earlier. The Lord who rules over all says, I will punish the Amalekites because of what they did to Israel. As the Israelites came up from Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them. Now go, attack the Amalekites, completely destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare the Amalekites. Put the men and women to death. Put the children and babies to death. Also, kill the cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Get rid of anything associated with the word Amalekite. So what does Saul do? Saul attacked the Amalekites. He struck them down all the way from Havilah to Shur. Shur was near the eastern border of Egypt. Saul captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, but he and his men totally destroyed with their swords all of Agag's people. So Saul and the army spared Agag. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle. They spared the fat calves and lambs. They spared everything that was valuable. They weren't willing to completely destroy all of those things, but they totally destroyed everything that was worthless and weak. And then we hear some words from God that we hope we never hear spoken about us. Chapter 15, verse 10, it says, Then the Lord gave Samuel a message. He said, I am very sad that I have made Saul king. He has turned away from me. He has not done what I directed him to do. And when Samuel heard that, he was angry. He cried out to the Lord during that whole night. Now, Again, I told you I was a movie buff, and I love watching movies. One of my favorite actors um, appears in all kinds of films, but he kind of has this same countenance about him every single role that he plays. He's a guy that can walk in the room and set matters straight in a matter of seconds. He doesn't take any bull from anybody. He demands respect. He demands fear because he holds nothing back, and he speaks the truth. He tells it like it is. And I'm not sure that I know this for a fact. I didn't go in and do a lot of research or anything like that. But I imagine that his mom probably named him after the Old Testament prophet. So take a look at this guy showing up just after you've messed up. All right? This is the guy that doesn't take any blankety-blank from any blankety-blank uh, type people, right? Uh, if you, uh, you, you don't have to raise your hand if you've watched Samuel L. Jackson movies. But you know... He's, he's a bad dude, okay? And he's, gonna, he's, not gonna, um, he's not gonna put up with anything. And that's what happens. Samuel walks into the room and says, what the heck is all of this? And he probably didn't say heck. He probably said blankety blank. What is all this blankety blank noise I'm hearing from these sheep bleeding and these cows lowing behind me? 
What is all this? And, and, and Saul gets into this but, 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 but mode and tries to say, you know what? Um, we did what we were supposed to do. We went and we killed the Amalekites. And he's like, but I still hear their sheep. I still hear their cattle. You were told to completely destroy everything. And you're telling me that their king is standing right over there? And he even, Samuel even has the king brought over and, and Samuel kills him. Saul's excuse was, you know, well, well, we wanted to celebrate. We wanted to party with you. We were waiting for you to get here so we could celebrate and show you we've got all this great stuff that we, that we brought along with us um, from the Amalekites, and we're going we're gonna to sacrifice it all together so that we can celebrate. Samuel says this, What pleases the Lord more, burnt offerings and sacrifices or obeying the Lord? For it's better to obey than to offer sacrifice. And at that point, Samuel and Saul no longer see each other. Samuel says, God has removed his blessing from you. He's no longer with you. Um, and Samuel goes on, um, and they, they don't interact again until there's a, there's a verse uh, in chapter 28. There's an interaction right before we get to our opening scene where uh, Samuel, I mean, Saul is so distraught that he, ha- that he has... Um, Samuel's spirit brought back from the dead through a medium so that he could consult with him one more time and get God back on his side. And even in that situation, uh, Samuel says, why have you woken me from the dead? And God is not on your side anymore. Uh, and, and by the way, your son and yourself are going to be killed tomorrow. That was a little foreshadowing that happened. But that's in a, that's in a later verse, and we're not going to go all the way there today. So Samuel leaves Saul. Saul's on his own. Uh, completely at this point. And um, we know what Samuel does next. Samuel goes, when last uh, two weeks ago, uh, Donnie told us about uh, how David was chosen from uh, eight brothers, or he had, he had seven brothers, or eight boys that belonged to Jesse, uh, and that um, David was uh, picked from that. He wasn't the tallest, he wasn't the strongest, he wasn't the biggest. He was the runt of the group. But yet David had some characteristics that God was after. And the main one being that he was a man after God's own heart. So what do we know about David? We know he was the son of, of Jesse. We know that he was from the tribe of Judah. At this point in the story, he's just a teenager. Um, he was a shepherd. That was his job. He was also a musician. Um, that was kind of, I guess, a hobby of his. Um, but he was very talented with that. Um, he was a bold person. We learned last week. He was brave. He didn't put up with anything, um, uh, anybody making fun of his God. We saw that in the story of David and Goliath. Um, but again, he was a man after God's own heart. So Samuel comes in to Jesse's house, can't find David there. They bring David in. Samuel goes to David, pours oil on his head, and says, God has chosen you to be the king of Israel. David doesn't ask any questions. David doesn't say a whole lot. David never sees Samuel again. David and Samuel go their separate ways. David goes back out into the, to the field. Um, and David's probably thinking, well, you know, maybe one day, but that wasn't on David's you know, list of things to do. I got to become king tomorrow type thing. Um, so um, Saul and David, how do they come together? Um, everybody thinks it has something to do with David and Goliath. That's actually the second time they meet. The first time they meet, 
Saul, remember, uh, God's spirit has left him, so Saul is tormented at times, and the Bible talks about this tormenting spirit that, that rests on him, and he becomes very angry and, and out of control, and some people want to say he was bipolar or depressed or this, that, and the other, and maybe he was, but there was this spirit that was, that was bothering him, and he would become uh, just out of control. And one of Saul's men said, hey, I know this guy, he's really good on the harp, and you know maybe some soothing music will help settle your soul down and so they call and bring in this teenage boy and he plays a few uh few strums his harp for a little while and it works and Saul becomes relaxed Saul has no idea who this kid is he just says you know what can you come back anytime I'm not feeling great and and play some music for me so that was the deal well then a few years go by and now it's time for the uh, Philistines to come in and Goliath's up there with his spear and all that kind of stuff and he's yelling insults and David's bringing lunch to his brothers out in the field because David's not old enough to fight in the army and David winds up, you know, the rest of the story, jumping in there, killing Goliath, chops Goliath's head off, runs around with Goliath's head and says, you know, my God's not going to be mocked. And Saul is very impressed by this. Saul is like, man, that's awesome. So you know what? Hey, why don't you come be a permanent part of my kingdom and still not knowing that, that David was the chosen one, why don't you come be a part of my kingdom and uh, you, can, you, can, you can lead my armies because you're one bad dude. So he brings David in to do that, and David has tremendous success. I mean, anything David touches turns to gold. Every time he goes to battle, he completely wipes out everybody. And in fact, uh, the women would come out on the street and they would start this chant. And this became a chant that was known um, and it's used multiple times in this story that people would refer to him, aren't you this guy? And that this was the chant, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. How do you think that made Saul feel? All right, maybe uh, weak, emasculated, uh, threatened, uh, jealous, and eventually it leads to this enrage and, and vengeance toward David. And David's done nothing to him. David's just following his commands to go out and lead. And David's showing him respect. So David is, uh, David's, you know, this is going on. David's becoming more and more popular as, as, as the days go by. And Saul's becoming more and more threatened. So there's another fit of rage that, that Saul has. And he's, he's standing there. And this actually happens twice. There's two occasions this happened. This spirit comes upon uh, Saul again. And he's just, he's, so mad and David's in there playing his harp. Well, it doesn't work either one of these times. Saul grabs his spear and throws it at David to try to pin him against the wall, but he misses. David was one of those fleet of foot guys that could move out of the way pretty quickly, I guess. So Saul, for the next several chapters, is trying to figure out how can I get rid of this David guy because he's becoming a threat to my kingdom. And I think he's beginning to figure out this is the guy that's going to be king, but that can't happen because the kingdom's going to stay in my son's name, okay? So this is, I got, I got to get rid of him. Now, um, so he says, you know what, I'll bring you in. I'll make you, um, I'll make you part of my family. You can be my son-in-law here, marry my oldest daughter. And David says, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and so that doesn't work again. So Saul sends David back out to battle, try to get him knocked off that way. And it doesn't happen. So we find out later that Michael, David, or Saul's youngest daughter, was in love with David. And David probably loved her too. And eventually they come up with this agreement. Okay, we'll get married. Let's go get the blessing from, from King Saul. And King Saul says, well, there's going to be a price on this. And, and Saul is 
100% certain that this is going to work this time. We're going to get rid of David this way. In order to marry my daughter, who you love, I need you to go uh, get something for me. Uh, I need you to go get 100 Philistine foreskins and bring them back. Now, we're not going to exegete and get into the who, what, where, when, why, or how. We needed foreskins of Philistine armies. But here's what happened. David goes out and gets 200. Okay? David, anything David does is successful at this point. That just enrages him more. So he says, okay, well, we're going to kill you another way. Um, I'm going to have one of my guards sneak into your bed while you're asleep, and we're going to kill you. And Michael finds out about this plan, and so she helps David escape. And David leaves for eight years. David is gone. David takes a small army with him, and they go off. And Saul spends the next eight years trying to hunt him down. Jonathan, uh, Saul's oldest son, who happens to be David's best friend, um, goes out to visit um, David to find out what's going on. And, I mean, these guys were tight. They were like brothers. They... Uh, the, uh, they were basically attached at the hip. They loved each other. The Bible says they just had a very unique relationship with one another. And Jonathan would do anything to protect uh, David and vice versa. And so um, Jonathan goes to David and says, hey, come on back home. There's nothing to fear. And David's like, look, dude, your dad's thrown a spear at me twice. And I don't think he's going to want me around. Jonathan's like, that can't be true. So Jonathan goes back to his dad and he says, hey, what's David done to you? Why would you want to kill him? And, and Saul just says, you know what? I'm going to throw a spear at you too. So he throws a spear at Jonathan and misses again. So obviously uh, P.E. was not Saul's um, best class. Um, and so all this um, craziness just continues to, to happen. Okay, Uh, Saul feels alone and abandoned. He knows that this David guy is going to take over. So let's move ahead in the story. Now it's David's turn. David has an opportunity to kill Saul on two occasions. The first one, David and his army are out uh, in the fields and they hear that they get word that Saul's army is coming. So they go hide. They go into this cave and they get back in the back of the cave in the dark part and are there for a while. So their eyes have adjusted. They they can see everything clearly in, in the cave. Saul's army stops at the mouth of the cave. And they're probably thinking, oh, well, this is it. Saul goes, hey, hang on, guys. I got to go to the bathroom. This is the only reference in the Bible where it talks about anybody going to the bathroom. <laughs> so Saul goes into the cave, squats to do his business. And his back is turned to David and his men. And David's men are like, ha, this is the day. Of course, they're whispering because they don't want Saul to hear. This is it. God has de- delivered him to you. Go kill him now. So David starts to sneak up on Saul, and as he's about to approach Saul to kill him, he feels great remorse and guilt. So instead of killing him, he bends down, and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Backs quietly back into the cave. Saul finishes his business, goes back outside, and David comes running out with nothing in his hand but the piece of, of Saul's robe. It says, then David went out of the cave and he called out to Saul, King Saul, my master. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down. He lay down flat with his face toward the ground and he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is trying to harm you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord handed you over to me in the cave. Some of my men begged me to kill you, but I didn't. I said, I will never lay my hand on my master because he is the Lord's anointed king. Look, my father, look at this piece 
of your robe that's in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I didn't kill you. See, there's nothing in my hand that shows I'm guilty of doing anything wrong. I haven't turned against you. I haven't done anything to harm you, but you are hunting me down. You want to kill me. So may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord pay you back because of the wrong things you've done to me, but I'm, I won't do anything to hurt you. People say evil acts come from those who do evil, so I won't do anything to hurt you. So David is proving his allegiance and, and loyalty to God's anointed king. David's like, it's not my time yet. I had an opportunity. So a couple chapters later, David has the same opportunity again. This time, they come up on Saul's army, and they're asleep. And David and his general sneak in past all the guards, and they're literally standing over Saul, laying on his bedroll or whatever he's laying on. And Saul's spear and water jug are right next to Saul's head. And the general says, look, David, I know you're convicted, and you'll feel guilty if you kill him. Let me do it. I'll take that spear. I'll drive it right through his chest. And the only thing he'll see as he opens his eyes is your face staring down at him. This is your time, David. Do it. And David says, no. So they take the spear and the water jug. They go outside the camp. When Saul wakes up, they're standing there with Saul's spear and and water jug and say, we had a chance again, but we didn't. You're the anointed king. I want you to know I'm not out to kill you. I don't understand why you're wanting to kill me, but end of story. So um, David in this situation um, had all the opportunity he wanted to to, to, to to start his journey right then and there. And I borrowed this uh, next saying from Andy Stanley, uh, who's one of, the, one of the pastors that I that I like, and he said this, David refused to replace what God had put in place. See, David wasn't in a hurry because this was about God's will, God's way, and God's timing. It wasn't about his. I mean, you could raise your hand if you want to, but how many of you have ever tried to hurry things along or been persuaded by somebody else to do something important even though you knew you should wait? Even though in the back of your mind you were feeling convicted by God, maybe saying, you know, now's not the time, even though everything else is telling me, go do it. That's the situation that he was in. So let's, let's go back to our opening scene. Saul is, or Jonathan's now dead. Saul is on his spear asking to be killed. Um, and this Amalekite comes and kills him. So um, let's ask a couple of questions here. Number one, what if the Israelites had trusted and obeyed? Would this scene ever have happened? If the Israelites had trusted and obeyed, if they just let God be their king and not demanded a king themselves, would we be in this situation? Would we be in this situation? What if Saul had trusted and obeyed? If Saul had waited seven days and waited till Samuel got there at the end of the seventh day and let Samuel do his thing, the Bible says what would have happened? His kingdom would have been forever. But he didn't. What if Saul had done what he was supposed to do and completely wiped out the Amalekites? Well, I tell you this, he would not have been killed by an Amalekite because they would have all been gone. What if David had disobeyed? What if David had not listened to God's conviction conviction, and went ahead and listened to to his army and went ahead and killed Saul when he had a chance? 
Don't know exactly what would have happened. I do know this, that Jonathan would have become the next king and there would have been some major dissension between David and Jonathan, I'm sure, pop up since, since um, David was the one that was supposed to be the next king. So we don't know for sure, but it all comes back down to this application of trusting and obeying. Because doing things our own way because we fear or are unsure of what God has instructed us to do is much riskier than following through with God's instructions for our lives. That's what I want you to take home today. We see Saul sows the consequences of giving in to his fear and distrust of God, and he disobeys, resulting in chaos and misses out on what might have been. And David patiently receives his appointment as king by being loyal and patient. He doesn't try to hurry things along. In fact, it took another seven years before David fully became the king of all of Israel. He started out just as king over his tribe and through all the politics and having to fight with um, Saul's other sons over who was going to be king. Uh, It took a while, but David remained patient. So, flashback movies. They don't just end when they come back to the opening scene. What happens? There's usually about 20 more minutes of of story that happens to get you to the concluding point. And I don't have 20 more minutes to share with you. But I do want to point you today to this absolute hope uh, that we talk about here at Journey Church. The rest of the story goes like this. The Old Testament continues on, and the Israelite people continue in the same cycle over and over. It becomes a vicious cycle, if you want to use that term, of okay, God, we trust you now, and now we want to do things our own way. We trust you now, now we want to do things our own way. And eventually they get scattered uh, to Babylon and other places, and then they come back, and it's just this vicious cycle. And God finally says, you know what? I'm just going to be quiet for a while because apparently um, you're you're not getting the picture that I want to be your king. I want you to trust me and obey me. And he's silent for 400 years the end of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament to, to the beginning of the New Testament, God is silent for 400 years. There's no prophets that are preaching or, or bringing God's word. There's no priests that are doing anything other than just uh, meaningless sacrifices. Um, there's just silence. And then an angel comes to a young teenage girl and says, it's time to bring the hope of the world. And God stepped down from heaven and made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could trust and obey. I grew up in a little Southern Baptist church, and one of the hymns in our hymnals uh, was called Trust and Obey. And the chorus says, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this day, and I thank you for the story of David and Saul and just the complexities that are there. And... and, um, God, we've, we've, we've been conditioned in life to not look back at our past mistakes, um, just to look forward and, 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 and see what's ahead, not, not to look back. But God, your word gives us a roadmap of ways that we can look back, not, not just at our mistakes, but look back at what you have done for us, the amazing things that you've done and the ways that you have brought us through uh, trials and tribulations 
God, may we look back on those things and remember those things on a daily basis so that that can fuel us forward in our trust and obedience of you and what you would have us to do. Thank you, Father, for finally coming down to us as Jesus Christ and showing us the way that if we just put our trust in you and obedience in you, we can have abundant eternal life. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for not removing your spirit from us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.